In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. Instagram is one of my guilty pleasures. It's the one social media outlet where I can curate a feed of only the images I want to see without any broader obligation or purpose. One of my longest follows has been Matthew Beton. I was immediately struck by the ridiculous roster of celebrities Matthew was capturing, and of course, with the beauty of his photos. He would photograph Prince, Lenny Kravitz, and Quincy Jones, just to name a few. I quickly noticed that Matthew was doing much more than just taking photos, so I decided to reach out and understand how he's built his forever employable career. As you'll hear in our interview, while Matthew exhibits most of the qualities of being forever employable, including self-confidence, continuous learning, and reinvention, there's an underlying theme to his success, perseverance. Listen to how he started out at age 19, working as a young graphic designer, and how he moved into the world of album cover design for artists such as Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and yes, Prince. His forever employable story is fascinating. Take a listen now. Super excited to be here with Mathieu Beton, photographer, designer, so many other things extraordinary. And I'm super excited to talk to you about some of the things that you've done and that, in my opinion, and hopefully the stories that we share will confirm have made you forever employable in this way. So you start off as a graphic designer, is that correct? Correct. Yep. Self-taught so, graphic designer. And so what year did your career start and what were the job prospects like back then? So I started on my own where I used to design like these magazines and like I kind of taught myself, you know, graphic design and I would do these, you know, I was a big Prince fan. So I would do these Prince fanzines and I had a fan club and some guys that even like come to me to design albums. I was 16. I didn't realize were bootlegs. And then pretty quickly I realized they were bootlegs. But you know, there was no money, but it was like, oh, cool, I can design a cover for this and being oblivious to the fact that these guys were making so much money and just using the fact that I was a fan, whatever. But it was practice. Yeah. And these I are prints, to... right? These, these fanzines, you're doing print graphic design at this point. Prints, print graphic design. Print. <laughs> it's for the, for the singer prints, and it was in print. Yeah, yeah. So prints and prints. So basically, I was always kind of like, teaching myself stuff, designing stuff, designing fake covers. And actually my first job that I got in New York. So I went to NYU. So I started like teaching myself graphic design when I was in LA. Probably I used to make those little cassette mixes and stuff for friends and girlfriends. And so I would always do covers. And so that was probably when I was like 15, 14, 15, 16. And then went to Cal State Northridge in LA and then transferred from there to NYU in New York. And Basically, I had to have a job, you know, to live in New York because New York is yeah. an expensive city and I, I couldn't just like call home for money. So I uh, started, you know, looking at job prospects and I wanted I knew I wanted to be a graphic designer. Photography was like a little hobby, but I didn't think it would ever be my profession at the time. And right. so I basically created a portfolio of 
all stuff I wanted to accomplish. So it would be like a Marvin Gaye cover, a Stevie Wonder cover, a Prince cover, a Rolling Stone movie posters, all this stuff. And then I went to these job interviews and it was basically like a completely fake portfolio, but it was my work. Like I designed the stuff, but it just right. none of it had actually come to fruition. So, you know, I brought it to a couple of places and then I, I went to this place called Gray and Gustafson uh, in New York on Lafayette Street. Yeah. And the guy's looking at all this stuff and, and the job was for, you know, a graphic designer for clothing brands, for like these pop-up brands that they would do with JCPenney's and Macy's and stuff. But the guy's like, this stuff is so cool. It's like not not really what we're doing here. But, you know, I'm impressed that you've done all these covers for all these big people and you seem so young. I was like 19 at the time or something. Right. And I was like, well, you know, they're not really for the people. They're <laughs> they're for this interview, you know, and the guy's like, wait a minute. So you came in here with a portfolio of all fake stuff. I was not fake, you know, but yeah. And he's like, OK, you're hired. He's like, that takes a lot of balls. And so. <laughs> So that was my first job. So I developed basically like brand concepts, like from the name of the brand to the logos, to the graphics and all this stuff. So long story short, I went from there, you know, I started at like nine bucks an hour or something. And then within like six months, I had like a, you know, bigger promotion. I was, I was ballsy when you're young, like, you know, or at least I was totally ballsy. So I would say, okay, I need to make, you know, $25 an hour. This $9 an hour thing is, is not yeah. for me. And the thing is, I was going to NYU full time. I would go to work, take classes early in the morning. Like I think my first class was like six something a.m. And then I would get out at nine, go to work. And then after, at 5.15 or 5.30, I would have classes till 11 something p.m. every day, you know, wow. so full time job, full time classes. And so it taught me a lot of discipline, like getting through that schedule. And also it's around the time where I basically started never sleeping, which is my normal sleep schedule <laughs> and as I, yawn. Sleep schedule I said the word none. sleep and I yawn and so from then you know I started getting the word was out like people started saying like this you know this kid is doing all this cool stuff let's try to hire him so I got a couple well, of companies so, called me unpack that a little bit so how did okay. word get out right so I love the fact that you said look I don't have the portfolio that I want so I'm gonna design the portfolio that I want and I'm gonna yeah. use that as a pitch right and that gets you your first gig and then that right. starts to grow from there. And then word gets out. Tell me, I mean, we're, we're talking about the year we discussed before we, we hit record that, that you and I are the same age. So yeah. 19, 20 years old, we're talking about is 1992, 1993, this right? Would, this would be around 93. Yeah. I moved to New York in 92. So it would be 92, 93. I'd have to like look specifically, but. Okay, but 1992, 93, right? There's no internet. There's no YouTube. There's no online anything, right? How is word getting out in 1992-93 so, about you? What you had back in the days, especially for the fashion industry, you had these fashion trade shows like Magic in Vegas, Première Vision in Paris, or the Who's Next and all these things. And so when this company would present all these brands, you'd have other brands that would walk by and say, hey, this, this is pretty cool. There was something called like Terra Systems. That was like really, when I think back, the whole brand, I wish I had done it as my brand because the whole thing was all about like, organic hemp fabrics and and using the earth for garments and so we had all these ideas that became a big movement you know but back yeah. then it wasn't a thing yet so what happened is a couple different companies including like abercrombie and fitch and american eagle outfitters and uh, there was a company called fob i don't remember what they had different brands i don't remember now and they reached out to me and said hey you know we are interested in having you 
come work for us. And then I went and met with everybody. Uh, there was also a company called Aeropostal. Oh, yeah. And, and so what I started doing at the time is I said, listen, like, you know, certain companies wanted to hire me, but I had to move out of New York. And at the time I was really comfortable. I really liked New York. I wasn't ready to move out. And so what I started doing is I would say to Aeropostal, I'll work freelance. And then I, all these companies, let me just work freelance so that I could do different jobs while I still had a job, you know? So, right. so I would do a little freelance stuff, make sure it didn't look the same as what I was doing, you know? And then basically that was my thing. Let me do a bunch of freelance so that I, yeah. so I'll sleep even less, you know, I'm still going to college and all that. <laughs> and then I graduated from college in 96. So at that time I'd been just kind of freelance, working at Gray and Gustafson for a while, then freelancing with these different companies. And then in 96, I was flown out to somewhere where American yeah. Eagle Outfitters is the headquarters. Was. Right. I can't believe I'm forgetting right now. I might have been in Ohio or something. Yeah. And uh, this guy, Jay Schottenstein, was the, owned the company and uh, wanted to meet me. And basically, they made me an offer, which at the time, you know, being like 22 or whatever, yeah, was kind of surreal. You know, I got offered this big salary and I was in charge of my title was like senior packaging and marketing designer, you know, where I would get to do all the packaging for the clothes, all the labels, all the t-shirt graphics, all this, anything that had graphics, I was doing it. And then also got to work on some of the ad campaigns and things like that. And also what a big thing for me was rebranding the stores, the American Eagle stores, because when I went in there, I was like, this looks like 1978. Like, this is not a good look. Like, 73 right. might have been a good look, but 78, it's kind of the, the big eagle, the big eagle logo on the stores. And Wrong part of the 70s. Yeah. You're so, using here. <laughs> I was working with a guy named Michael Leedy at the time who was my boss. And so basically he had, you know, had me come in and like rebrand. And to this day, when I'm in a mall, I see my logos and all that stuff still, you know, 20 years later or more are still the American Eagle look, you know, it's still the same logos and when we did at AE and all that, the sub brands. And so that's pretty cool. And so at that point, that was my fashion experience. I was going to Hong Kong every six weeks. I was going to Tokyo shopping, Paris, London, you know, for uh, inspiration. And Hong Kong was more for manufacturing and to oversee packaging. And at a certain point, I asked myself, I think subconsciously, like, is this what I really want to do? You know, like, do I want my books? My parents are fashion designers. And I grew up in it, but it was never something I was really passionate about. But at this point, I was like in demand. I got a call from Nike and Nike was like, you know, hey, you know, we're really interested in hiring you. And I remember like they flew me out to Portland and I remember coming into what felt like 2001 Space Odyssey, like the offices. And everybody looked like clones. You know, everybody was wearing the same (laughs) same shoes and everything. And I was like, it was like, welcome to Gattaca, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and at the time, I get offered a salary that's probably bigger than the money I made last year. You know, it's like a huge salary. Right. But I was young and didn't really care about the money aspect of it. All I could see was I'm moving to a city that I don't really want to live in, even though it's really nice. But you know, it's not really yeah. where I want to be yeah. at this age. You know, maybe I'll retire there, but it's not where I want to be at this age. Uh-huh. And concurrently to that. We didn't discuss this yet, but so I have this big collection of black film memorabilia and soundtracks and stuff that's been an obsession of mine since I was like a teenager. And and 
one of the things I had started doing on my downtime, I don't know if when that was, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., you know, right. was I wanted to design a book on black film posters, especially the 70s black exploitation yeah. posters. And so I'd started putting something together and, you know, was photographing my collection and designing a cover and pages and all this stuff. At this time, you know, I'm at, at American Eagle Outfitters and there was a thing where we had some big meeting and they said like that my division or like the, the graphic tees or something had, I can't remember if it went from like making $300,000 a year to like 14 million. I, I'm, I'm making up numbers, <laughs> but it was that drastic where right. I was like, holy, shit, this is crazy. Like at least people are making a lot of money off this work I'm doing. And part of me was like, okay, well, I'm, that's a job. That's what everybody does. You do your job well, you get a good salary, you, yeah. you know, you work. But I remember thinking to myself, like, is that really my passion? And at the same time, a friend of mine calls me from LA and is like, Hey, there's an article in uh, I think LA weekly about Quentin Tarantino. And he's working on this movie called Jackie Brown. Yeah. So this, this is now 97. And in the article about Jackie Brown, it mentions that Quentin is working on a book on black exploitation films. And my friend was like, isn't that what you were doing? And he's like, I'm sorry, man, you know, can't compete against Tarantino. And this right. is like his last movie at this point was Pulp Fiction, you know, so he's like king of right. the world. It's as big and as it gets. Yeah. So I go into like a full on depression because I was like, this was my idea. And, you know, you can't right. compete, you know. And at the time, my ex, who was, the, you know, my, my children's mother, my ex-wife, every day is like, just contact him, like, get, reach out to him, you right. know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Okay, you reach out to Quentin Tarantino, like, right. yeah, we just pick up the phone, you know, but a really good lesson in, in, in listening to the women in your life. Also, it was just at a certain point, she was driving me crazy. So I just wanted her to shut up about it. And I picked <laughs> up the phone yeah. and I found the number for his production company, A Band Apart. And cold call you know just called and was like and at this point you have to imagine like i think i was just coming back from hong kong in europe and japan and i'm in full like got a million things to do at work but all that my mind is preoccupied by this passion project and even though at the time at 23 by then what is it 24 maybe yeah i'm making a six-figure salary you know it's like okay this but I was working hard. They were doing really well. So I felt like, okay, it seems fair. And so I reach out and then the woman on the other line is like, don't call here, hangs up the phone. And I, <laughs> I was calling, I started calling every day. Like I'd like to talk to Quentin Tarantino <laughs> and finally told this story before, but it's funny. Like finally this woman picks up the phone and I'm like, listen, before you hang up, you're going to end up getting fired because the stuff that I have in my collection, I already know Quentin doesn't have for his book eventually i'm going to meet him and when i meet him i will tell him that i tried to reach out and that his book could have been perfect but unfortunately because some of the pieces that i have are one of a kind his book is not going to be as good as it could be and yeah. that's going to be all on you because you know you hung up on me every time i try to call i don't need to speak to him i just need to speak to the guy in charge of this book you know yeah and the woman is like total silence and she's like okay, give me your phone number and please stop calling, you know? So <laughs> the next day, and this is again, you know, the lessons are the same. Like if you don't take action, if you're not ballsy, nobody's going to come knocking on your door to be yeah. like, hey, you know, uh, you want to do this book for us? Because nobody knows in that world, nobody knew who I was. 
and nobody knew that I had this collection. And like you said, there was no internet like there is now where people can see my Instagram and be like, oh, wow, this guy collects all this stuff. And so the next day, this guy calls me. His name is Jerry Martinez. And he's like, hey, uh, you, Matthew. I'm Jerry. I'm the one doing the book. You know, and he's just like, what you got? And I'm like, okay, there it is. You know, so I start talking about what I have. And and he says, well, what do you do? Where do you live? I live in New York. I work for, you know, American Eagle Outfitters as an art director. And at that point, I'd gotten some kind of promotion. And the guy's like, well, it's too bad you don't live in L.A. because, you know, we're doing this book here. And well, mm-hmm. oh, it's, well, nice talking to you. And I said, well, listen, I'll quit this job today. Like, I'll come out to L.A. Like, <laughs> I, just give me a week or something to tidy things up here, you know. And yeah. the guy like, totally freaked out. He's like, uh, okay, uh, bye. You know, hangs up. And I'm like, I like scared them away. But right. the next day he calls me again. He's like, Hey, uh, were you serious about coming to LA? And cause at this point, I think I emailed the guy a bunch of pictures of posters I had or something. So he saw that I was for real, you know? Right. So I said, yeah, absolutely. And then next to him, he's in a car. He's calling me. It was like kind of loud. I could hear the freeway or whatever. And next to him, I hear somebody doing like black exploitation radio spots. Like, you know, Pamela Greer is Foxy Brown. Uh, I'm like, right. I thought he was listening to like some radio spots or something. And then I realized that's Quentin Tarantino. He's like right uh-huh. next to the guy who's calling me all of a sudden. So I'm like, wow, this is kind of crazy. Like there it is. And so yeah. I tell the guy, he's like, okay, well come by Friday, come by the office. This is where our office is. So this was like on a Monday or Tuesday. I'm in New York, they're in LA. Right. And it was on Beverly. So I'm like, okay, I'll be there. so we so we can talk not so we can start working but just so we can talk like an interview so i go i fly out i tell my boss or whatever that i've got a family emergency in la or whatever it is my mom is in la so i was like i gotta go see something so i'm taking friday out i go there i show up some of this woman is like yes who are you i say my name she's like oh my god like she's the woman from the phone you know (laughs) she's like what are you doing here i said i have an appointment with jerry martinez they called me the other day and so she's like, you do? Okay, hold on. And then like she calls Jerry and Jerry's not there. And <laughs> she puts him on the phone and is like, hey, I'm like, hi, I'm here. He's like, well, we didn't think you were actually going to come. Like, well, no, if you tell me to be there Friday, I'm going to be there Friday. Right. So long story short, I end up designing this book and working with them. And by being there, I end up quitting my job with like a 10 day notice or something because Right. They played tough in LA and it's like, well, if you want to do this, we need you back here in a week or 10 days. So that was kind of drama, but I finished everything I had to do. So I left it on, you know, good terms. The guy totally, even though he was upset because I was doing like five people's jobs and that's always been my thing in any job I've had, I'm doing five people's job. Right. So it was hard to replace, you know, so they understood. So I left my six figure salary and went and did a project that over, I think, Eight months of work paid me like seventy five hundred dollars. Wow! You know, so it was a big, big risk. You know, but that's where my heart was, and I had to just decide at that time. I didn't have kids yet. I was just like, I'm just going to do this, and it's a passion project. And the book came out. I didn't get the credit I thought I would get because I learned another lesson about (laughs) contracts. You know, right? And uh, basically, the guy who had hired me to do it was like, "This is great. This guy can do all the work." I can take all the credit. I did get credit, but it was like an associate designer credit or something when I had pretty much designed the whole book. But again, lesson learned. I'm not mad at it. It was a great opportunity. I got to work on some film posters for Quentin and his company while I was there, you know, design. So it was cool. 
from that point, I decided to switch into entertainment. That was my long story to explain that. Look, and there's a theme here, right? There's a theme here of obviously of hard work, right? And there's a theme here of aspiration and not letting the realities of the aspirational goals get in the way, right? So you didn't have the portfolio you wanted, so you designed it, right? And then you used yeah. that to get the gig. You didn't want to lose working on a well-received, you know, book like this because somebody else that's more more well-known than you was doing it. So you injected right. yourself into that conversation. And even though they didn't necessarily initially want you in that conversation. Yeah, they, or, or uh, need me. I didn't know uh, but, they needed me. But. Right. And then they brought you in as well. So tell me this. So today, right, a lot of your stuff, so you're shifting into photography and the music industry, right, at this point, yeah. right? So there's a ton of stuff. Why the music industry and then why photography? Well, music is my life. I was always collecting records. I was always obsessed with music since the time I was a little kid. Yeah. And, you play, uh, did you play an you instrument? Know, at one point I tried playing guitar, but I was not good. So I gave it up and decided I'll just be, you know, behind the scenes. At one point I had like this little white funk band in high school and, and uh, we were probably terrible. But it was, <laughs> it was a fun, it was nice. a fun few rehearsals and realized like, okay, I'm going to stay behind the scenes, you know, but uh, I had a couple of nice guitars. <laughs> so music being my life, you know, that was my next thing. I started courting people at labels and how do I meet artists? And, you know, I wanted to design, I collected albums. So it was a natural thing for me to want to design album covers because I started collecting the albums because of the covers. Like before I even knew what music was on a record, I used to buy records based on the cover, you know, and that's how I got a lot of my collection initially, especially like soul, funk, jazz stuff, because I was always so attracted to like these 60s, 70s black imagery, you know, mm -hmm. and Paris, that was a big thing. You know, Paris opened the, the floodgates for jazz and opened the doors that, that were closed in America for so many artists. And so there's such a love in France for black music of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so I got a lot of my stuff, you know, going to flea markets with my dad on, on weekends, which I still do when I go to Paris. Nice. And so basically, I started reaching out to some people and then like a friend that I met designing a logo for a record label, like somebody would say, hey, my friend Lisa Cortez, is she has a label at Mercury or she works at Mercury, but right. she's starting her own label called Loose Cannon Records. You should meet her. I go meet her. She likes my passion and like sees I have all this stuff and like, oh my God, how old are you? The, the thing I've gotten, even to this day where I'm now just turned 47, I still get the like, how can you be your age and have all this stuff and know all this stuff about this, you know, older you know, right. and that's a big part of what's actually connected me with a lot of older artists, you know, is that knowledge and collection. It's not something where you can just go to Google and quickly right. Google everything. It's like you have to know this stuff because a lot of stuff is really obscure and you're not going to find it. And if you're going to look on Wikipedia, half the stuff's going to be wrong anyway. So basically, I got into Lisa Cortez. This woman introduced me to a guy named Harry Weinger, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, was at Polygram at the time. And then Polygram's now, with, you know, was bought by Universal. So he's still at Universal. The guy that did all the funk essentials and all the Motown stuff to this day, does all the Motown stuff. So we met, we hit it off. A couple other, a few other guys like us were funk fans. You know, we started yeah. this thing called the Funk Lab. And we would meet at the off Polygram offices and we'd all bring our records, rare records, and we'd listen to stuff. And it was like a nerd fest. And first thing I think we did that came out was a thing called Funk on Film, which was black exploitation soundtracks compilation. Yeah. And I designed the artwork. So that was one of the first things I did. 
And then Harry had me design the Funk Essential series. There was a, a ballad series. So it was like five different bands. And then the Funk Essentials 12 inch. So I started doing all this stuff. And that was really, I'd already been designing album covers for independent artists because I used to also manage artists. And so I would, there was a band called Sky Juice that I was managing from Montreal. Sky Juice. Nice. They were the best. Yeah. And Frankie Selector was the lead singer. He's a solo artist now, but oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, Montreal is great. So, basically was designing all this stuff in the artists and then i started designing these compilations and same thing at a certain point i'd get the phone calls from another label like oh i love right. this you did you know can you design our record or can you design this series and bmg was a big thing i started working with them and you know that was a lot a lot a lot of projects for many years and then you know companies get bought out people leave i i no longer have them as a client at a certain point it pushes you to move on and find new clients but the word of mouth thing was really big. And photography, I always did as a hobby. It was never a professional thing. Right. And then um, I basically started doing, again, same thing as the design. So I had friends like a guy named Chris Pierce in L.A. He's a great artist. Shane Alexander and my friend Trevor Manier, who I ended up managing. Basically, all these artists, I would design their albums and then I would shoot the photos and started doing this thing of like you know, art direction, design, photography, by Matthew Butoma, blah, blah, blah. And then I would go to a label and people would see that and be like, oh, this is great. Like, mm -hmm. you mean we don't have to hire two, three guys. We can just have you do the whole thing. Right. And so there's a guy named Jeff Aroff who used to run, he's the co-chairman of Warner Brothers Records. And back in the day was at A&M and he had the, a label, his own label called The Work Group. And he was a co-chairman of Virgin Records, signed everybody from Ben Harper, Lenny Kravitz, uh, wow. Fiona Apple, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, he went all, Paul Abdul, like all over the spectrum. And Jeff was like the first, like at a major label, I was doing all this indie stuff. And I had been doing a lot of major label stuff with design for all the major labels. But as far as photography, it was like, oh yeah, you just shoot it. I love that you do all this stuff. And so I started shooting stuff for him and even like compilations, I would do the photography. There's a cool compilation called What is Hip? Mm -hmm. uh, like one of those remixes that he had me do. And then through him, I connected into the soundtracks world. Somebody who worked with him named Ellen Wakayama. And when Jeff left, she started having me do all the Transformers and Spider-Man and Harry Potter. So I wanted to ask you about that because I read that yeah. about you in your bio and it said soundtrack designer, soundtrack developer. What was the- Designer. What I mean, is a soundtrack designer? It just means I design all the physical soundtracks, you know, the special editions and the album. And so they'll give you like the key art. They'll only give you like one image of the key art, the movie poster, yeah. and then develop the whole rest of the package and posters and ads and whatever goes with it. You know, sometimes 12 inches, sometimes singles, yeah. sometimes box set editions, you know, so there were big jobs. And in certain cases, I would do something with the soundtrack and then the film company would be like, oh, we love that. We want to use that for a poster. And then, you know, you'd get like extra money for that or something. Right. And then sometimes like the Marley documentary, the Kevin McDonald, you know, I would design the key art itself. So I designed the movie poster. And then so all the other elements are like easy because, you know, I already designed that. So then how do you transition? So, I mean, you, you're doing a tremendous amount of photography with Dave Chappelle, with Lenny Kravitz, yeah. right? So how does that kind of transition into so, this being certain, seemingly your primary gig no now yeah although i'm still doing you know design i still like to do like what i did you know with lenny what i'm doing with dave or i just did with ben harper where i'm doing the photography and the design that's going always been my thing i'd much rather do the whole thing 
But, you know, sometimes they've already shot photos or whatever. So, so what happened is, I mean, Lenny, I owe a big part of that too, because so I was shooting these, you know, these album covers and things for Warners and for indie artists, but I hadn't really yet called myself a photographer. And so I had kind of a, a eureka light bulb moment when, so I designed the 2009, so 11 years ago, I designed the uh, Let Love Rule 20th anniversary release for Lenny. And so uh, yeah. at the time, a friend, an old friend I'd worked with a bunch named Gary Gersh, who's now at AEG, but at the time I had a label called Strummer. He started managing Lenny. We talked. We talked about how it was like, because my, my whole thing's always been legacy. A lot of my work is legacy work. And so, you know, I've been consulting on the Prince stuff and like, right. I'd also done that for Prince while he was alive. But like, so big thing for me is because probably my collection and everything, I always want to see albums being remastered, re-released with bonus tracks. And so I got to work on almost every Marvin Gaye release in the past 20 years, Stevie Wonder, James Brown, you know, Marvin and James Brown have been kind of, Thanks to my friend Vartan, who's the art director of a Universal, he's always hired me to do those. So I'm kind of like the the guy for those. And I just yeah. did a new, a few new Marvins. One of them just came out called More Trouble, which is like outtakes from Trouble Man on vinyl. And got a couple more that haven't been announced yet that I just did. But so basically, what's happening here is that the aspirational portfolio you created for yourself when you were 19 is now coming to fruition. You're actually, uh, I, I would say, 97 percent all of the things in that portfolio I've done. Every single artist I had, including Marley, including Prince, including 100%, if I count capacity of like whether I photographed the people or designed, everybody in that portfolio I've done, which wow. is kind of crazy, you know. That's crazy. As far yeah. as designing covers for maybe like 80%, 85%. But yeah. because like I shot the Stones, but I've never done a cover for the Stones. But I also did like the first poster for a Shine a Light movie, you know. They were like street snipes that I did. And then I shot them last year. And I just shot Mick again a couple months ago in Paris. That's the crazy part of my story that I always think is like, you know, passion into reality. Because somehow, even when I was a kid, like, I always knew that these things were going to happen. I didn't really know how they would happen. But like, I knew that I would be like sitting across from Prince someday. I knew that I would be on the road sleeping on a tour bus. I knew like, I mean, even with Lenny, like, I've known Lenny for like 30 some years, like yeah. kind of like family friends, but I was a total diehard fan. You know, when he first started releasing records and stuff, I was such a fan. So to end up being like, you know, his creative director and photographer for a decade was all surreal. But at the same time, I was like, well, I know I can bring something to the table. And we've done a lot of amazing work. And then, you know, so then... I had a whole other new life in the comedy world, you know, with Dave and a bunch of other artists, thanks to Dave. Right. It's the same kind of thing, like doors opening other doors, you know, and having Dave trust me to shoot all these photos for these, all these Netflix specials, you know, seeing my name at the end of all these Netflix specials, is totally surreal, you know, because I was a complete diehard Dave Chappelle fan. Sure. You know, I used to watch Chappelle show religiously, like you couldn't yeah. get me out of the house. It didn't matter if you had a wedding or something. I was not coming if Chappelle show was on that night, you know? So <laughs> right. it was before, before TiVo and all that, you know? Right. So, I remember. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and there's a lot more to come. Like I keep saying, I had a uh, bucket list, you know, so to speak of people I want to work with. And I think it was about five years ago was like, you know, in the next 
five to 10 years, you know, people that I want to work with in one capacity or another was like Ben Harper, who I knew, but we never worked together. And yeah. here I just finished shooting and designing his new album. That nice. will come out, you know, sometime. I'm not sure when this later this year. <laughs> you know, I got to design two posters for Jack White. Yeah, like literally everyone you're talking about, like, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> that's, that's what <laughs> that's I try amazing. to go for. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask you a question. You've done all these things. You're building, all, like you said, doors open, other doors opening, other doors. One thing leads to the next, right? Word of mouth. So right now we are locked down, right? Global shutdown, yeah. coronavirus. There's no touring. There's nope. no travel. There's no comedy tours. There's no music tours how are the things that you've done up until now helping you stay busy stay connected keep improving keep working basically well okay so all the work on the road is gone obviously so all that right. stuff that i had planned this year has been canceled or postponed so that's been very tough but you know i'm sort of focusing on my print work like you know organizing print sales and stuff like that you know because the whole thing has always been about passive income like how do you get to a place right. where you can have passive income. And so yes. for me, passive income is prints. And I've done really well with exhibitions. My Leica exhibitions and stuff had like broken records every time I did one for Leica. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just had this massive surgery like six weeks ago, the sinus surgery. So I was kind of knocked out for a month. Now it's like I'm back to better and, you know, yeah. I'm breathing normally and all that. But that was kind of hard. So I couldn't really get much done after that surgery. But now I've been organizing even stuff that I've always said I would do, like organizing and cataloging my collection. That's what I've been doing every day, yeah. cataloging my record collection and like, you know, even to see like what I have. And because that stuff gets used a lot for projects, like people always come to me that, hey, we need this record for this reissue. You know, we're doing this Marvin Gaye thing and they'll use like my collection of 45s in it or the Prince 1999 box set that came out. A bunch of my collection is in that there's a gatefold with all these records, like something I'd done for prints in uh, 2006 with this ultimate prints thing. So, you know, just basically right now is all about, first of all, figuring out a way to like reinvent myself a little bit, you know, maybe in the consulting yeah. and people are asking me a lot about teaching and stuff about doing yeah. courses. Which, so tell me why are you thinking about doing that? Well, paying bills for one, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> Also, like I said, my son's at Bard and stuff. And so there's a lot of, you know, right. two boys and ex-wife, all this stuff, a lot of bills. So I have to figure out a way to keep paying the bills like everybody else in the country and the world right now. It's like panicking a little bit. You know, and I also have a big collection of stuff. So it's also organizing that and saying, hey, maybe I sell some of these things. Maybe the reason I've held on to some of these things is so I can sell them for having a little less stress for a while. You know, you just have to be real in this time, yeah. you know. So I don't think it's anything like negative. I just think it's all about figuring out like, okay, what's the next step? You know, I know I'll be on the road again. I know I'm talking to artists every day. Yeah. Friends, stuff. they're all jonesing to get back. It's just a matter of sure. when, when it's going to be allowed. But, you know, for me, it's also writing. Like there's certain things I've always wanted to write. Mm. And I've started writing a book years ago. And then, you know, that's sort of like I always joke about like, a self-help book but not really but it's like you know for because my story like when you get into it it's kind of crazy like there's a lot of crazy coincidences that have happened that have brought me to where i am there's a lot mm -hmm. of you know real chase and you know i jokingly always say like stalking like somebody like prince somebody that was like stalking the person but then you know ended up doing right. work or whatever they saw i wasn't a crazy person but you know and a lot of other people and so i think the the biggest part of my business that I have to develop is 
basically my own legacy, like my archives and my print collection and stuff like that, you know, and, and making that available to people. And I don't know that, if that answers your question. It, it does. I got one more question for you, and then we'll wrap this yep. up. Okay, last yep. one here. So one thing that it seems to me that you're very good at is building a community and a network around you, right? Around your photos, around your activities, mm -hmm. around your designs. It's how I found you, to be perfectly honest, is, right. is I became a part of your network on Instagram and, and inspired to reach out and contact you and have this conversation. And so my last question for you is, is what advice would you give others, whether they're designers or photographers or otherwise, to build their network? How should they go about building a network and why is it important? Well, it's important, especially these days, because I feel like people don't really look at websites anymore. You know, that's everything is on Instagram or now this yeah. like TikTok and this and Snapchat. I just do like Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, but I really just do Instagram. Like everything posts everywhere, but I don't like individually really do stuff on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Right. But I think the importance is that's the only way to get your work seen. People should not be afraid to reach out to people that inspire them and people that yeah. admire them. You know, like I'm always happy to, if I, especially in times like this where I have a little more time to look at a portfolio and give advice. You know, I did uh, last, uh, I don't know, it seems like five months ago or something when uh, Chappelle got the Mark Twain Prize and we were in D.C. We did like a big master class at Duke Ellington, mm -hmm. which is the his arts high school. Yeah, And, you know, I did a masterclass on basically on what I do, talking about photography and design and stuff. And I told the kids, like, just reach out because looking at myself, for an example, you have to go after, like, if you want to work with somebody, don't be like, don't freak them out and send them scary stuff. But, <laughs> you, really, you know, you really have to, you really have to go after, like, if I decided, like, I really want to design a poster for Jack White and you have to find the connection and, that, you know, I, I'm... Well, I mean, that's a bad example because I'm, I'm good friends with Rob Jones, who's done, done most of the artwork for him and all the White Stripe stuff and all that. Yeah. But it took many years. Like, you have to be patient. It took many years for, for Rob to be like, knowing that I'm a fan and knowing that I collect the stuff, the, the, the vault. I'm a member of Jack White's vault and all that stuff. So Miles, my son. But to be like, hey, you want to design one of these posters? You know, like sometimes you have to know how to like subtly give people clues, you know? Yeah. And then as far as the network, just only post like the best work. Like don't just post everything. Like one of the big problems I have today is people feeling like, you know, they have to like post everything. They have to show everything, you know, every meal, everything. Like, yeah. like I find myself in quarantine. I've been cooking so much. I'm like, hey, this looks good. I post it, you know, but it's stupid. But it's like, then other <laughs> friends are like, oh my God, what's the recipe? that? I, but there's, so there's a little bit of a network thing to it. Yeah, even in there, even in there. But for like young artists, the most important thing is finding your voice. Like, who are you as a photographer? Who are you right. as a designer? Who are you as a writer? Who are you as as a speaker? You know, don't try to be somebody else. Which is the other problem I have is people posting photos and like, you know, this is my Avedon shot. This is my Herbert shot. This is my blah blah blah. You know, no, that yeah. like, what's the point of that? I'd rather just go look at my my Avedon book or Herbert's books or look on the prints I have on the wall, you know, like, I want to be inspired by something new. So when a young artist reaches out to people, he should make sure he or, or she, or they are in 2020. Now, you know, they <laughs> should make sure that what they're presenting is like the best they can present because 99% of the times you have one shot, like if you're going to reach out to somebody, it's like, if you're a recording artist, and you send the head of a label, a demo, 
and they're like, okay, I'll listen to your demo. And you send them like, this is pretty good, but I could do it better. They're never going to give you a second shot. If they already know you're submitting something that's not your right. best thing, it's not great. They're not going to bother to hear the next version. So it's the same thing with this stuff. It's like, make sure that what you create is the best you can create and keep working at it. If you're not ready to post something, don't post it. Like, if it means like, I might be better at this four or five months from now, then post photos of your dog and your meals. <laughs> And four months from now, post like a great shot that you took. The network thing builds itself, you know. My Instagram was private for like my first three years, I think. Uh-huh. So a lot of the time where I could have like built a really huge network, like while I was on the road with Lenny in the beginning or all this stuff or I was doing big things, I still wanted to be private because I had pictures of my kids and they were younger and all that, right. you know. So I always think of that, like if I'd always had an open account, you know, maybe I would have blah, blah, blah. But it's it's also not so much about the numbers. Like people get so stuck on numbers. Like I see people hiring, you know, models and stuff just based on the follower account, not so much on what on what they look like or, you know, right. what they could bring to the brand. Sure. So that's a bit of a shame in this era. Yeah. But it is what it is. I think yeah. this the pandemic thing is actually kind of changing the whole influencer thing because people right. are just, you know, they're just like, who cares? You know, like, yeah, I don't yeah, really... The- What's important is really coming through, I think, as we're filtering this out. Listen, Matthew, thanks so much for doing this and for your insight and your story. This was amazing. There's a lot of great stuff in here, and I appreciate your time doing this. Yeah, man. I look forward to reading your book. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great forever employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at gothealth.co and let me know.